All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to back up to verse 22, but our focus really will be 25 through 29. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He called, and not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As He says also in Hosea, I will call them My people who were not My people. And her beloved who is not beloved, and it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. When I was a kid, one of the shows that we watched every week, keeping in mind I am a child of the 80s, was the A-team. Anyone? Anyone admit that they watched the A-Team? Okay, all right, good, all right. Yeah, the A-Team was one of those great 80s shows, right? Great characters in it. Mr. T, right? Remember Mr. T? Okay. Uh, A-Team was known for a few things. One, it didn't matter how bad the explosion or accident, everybody was walking away from it, all right? That's number one. Go back and watch. No one ever died in the A-Team, all right? They got hurt, but no one ever... Helicopter slams into a cliff and you see two men running away. All right, I don't know how that worked, but that's how they did it. But then there was the catchphrase. I don't know if he said it at the end of every episode, but I remember it, you remember it, when Hannibal, the one in charge of the A-team, when the, when the, the story resolved itself, what would he always say? I love it. When a plan comes together. Had that big cigar sticking out of his mouth, and that was the conclusion. I love it. When a plan comes together. Wouldn't it be nice if life actually worked out that way? I mean, just in hearing it, don't we kind of react to that a bit instinctually? On the A-team, it always worked out. But let me ask you a question. Has your life always worked out according to plan? I mean, is there somebody here who would say, yep, I've checked off all the boxes. Where I am right now is exactly where I thought it would be, how I would get here, what I would be doing. This is every bit of it. I have nailed it. I guess is no, right? In fact, there is a lot of adjustment that comes with our plans. There's a lot of changes. There are a lot of challenges. We probably more identify with a well-known phrase adapted from a Robert Burns poem called To the Mouse. I mean, he adapted it from modern language. It has been adapted to us. The best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. That sounds right, doesn't it? We can think about that in our personal lives, professional lives, family life, church life. 
It may sound strange to say this, but the, behind what's going on in Romans 9 is this very problem. There are a lot of folks in the church, and then maybe even those who would be critics of what Paul has been doing and critics of the gospel and how the church has been developing, there would be a lot of those who would look at what has happened in the early church and they would wonder, has the plan gone awry? So what are you talking about? Well, if you go back to the early days, you go back to Pentecost, and you have Peter preaching this, this message in great power, and thousands of Jews believe the gospel. And, and in the subsequent days to follow, Jews are accepting Christ. The early church, I mean, really just, just filled up with Jewish converts. And and I'm certain that the assumption was, yes, this is how things should be. There was this assumption that that now that that the gospel has been fulfilled, now that the Old Testament covenant has now been made perfect in Christ and fulfilled in the new covenant, there would be scores, the masses of Jews would now transfer from Judaism to Christ. Undoubtedly, the early days looked like that. But then things started to change. In fact, by the time you get to Paul doing his missionary journeys, the picture is looking much different. No longer is there this flood of Jewish converts. Now they're trickling in. And in fact, at some point along Paul's missionary journeys, he gets so fed up with the hard hearts of those he was initially trying to reach. Once he gets to Corinth, he wipes his hands of them and says, no longer am I going to the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles. His greatest persecutors came from the Jews. Those who were threatening him the most, and even those who were opposing him inside the church, were even saying things like, well, Christ is fine, but you've got to keep all the Jewish law stuff. No, rather than there being this great transfer from the Old Testament people of God to the New Testament people of God, these these early converts from Judaism to Christianity, that now has, has, has slowed rapidly, and instead, the Gentile population is booming. By the time you get to a book like Romans, there's a lot more Gentiles in the church than Jews. By the time you get to the end of the first century, my guess is they outnumber them in multiples. And by the time you get into the second century, you almost hear nothing about conversion of Jews to Christianity. Now, I I know in our day and age we we think, oh, okay, is, is this really a deal? I mean, what's, so why was this such a concern? Why was this such a question? Because... They are wondering, of, of all those promises in the Old Testament God made to the nation of Israel, that, that, they, you know, that they would be blessed, they would be a mighty nation, that they would be the people of God. All of those promises, and yet, it's happening in the church. Instead of the masses coming to Christ out of the Jewish people, they're coming out of the Gentiles, does this mean... That something about God's plan has now gone awry. Has he messed up? Did did he make promises he can't keep? Has God now given up on the whole Old Testament deal? 
Does that, was, was, that, was that plan A and man, that plan did not come together, so let's do this whole plan B thing? Romans 9 is really a chapter that addresses this issue, at least in part. It is a chapter that makes very plain to us, and church, this should be good news. I hope it's good news. And the fact that when you and I make plans, it often feels like they go awry. God never has a plan B. Frankly, God never has a plan A. You know why? God just has a plan. And that plan never fails. It never falters. It never shifts. He never reevaluates. He never has to come back to it later and think, you know what, let's tweak this here and there. That was a good idea at the time, but I can see now this thing's not working out. God, in His sovereignty, is working out all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians chapter 1. All right. So what what do we make then of this seeming conundrum here of the promises related to the Jews in the Old Testament? So as we turn our attention again to chapter 9, Paul's concern here really is is that we do something that I think is difficult. And that is, rather than require that we understand every little thing of how God works, chapter 9 is one of those difficult, hard words of the Word, because I think we know exactly what it says, but we can't reconcile all the bits and pieces. Chapter 9 is a chapter that screams at us, at some point, your knowledge runs out before you understand all of God's plan. And so the expectation placed upon us is that we would trust in the way God is working in His world. And specifically, that brought up the issue of election. That the means by which God is at work in His world involves His electing work, His choosing some and passing over others. Granted, it's a hard issue. And it's one that we've not resolved. We've not resolved it. I think because the text leaves us in tension, that on the one hand, I believe this. On the other hand, as we'll see in chapter 10, God holds people responsible for rejecting the gospel. But before we get to that part, Paul lays out for us what it is to trust in God's election. He lays out these important qualities of who God is. Let's run through these quickly, just then we'll get to this last little bit that really should only take us a few minutes. I laugh as I even say it. All right, so three realities about God. One is a sovereign. Uh, God has always elected some, passed over others. All right, so that was our first principle. Number two, as righteous, God is allowed to show mercy to whoever he wills. That's where he said, I'll have mercy on whomever I have mercy and compassion on whomever I have compassion. That's quoted from God himself. Number three, as creator, God owes no explanation to his creation. He doesn't have to explain everything to me. Quite frankly, I could not handle it. My mind cannot handle it. But he's under no obligation to do so. And so then he lays out this argument, and this is what we've really been in for the last couple of weeks. He lays out a a few more features here. One, God has the right to do with his creation as he pleases. So we we saw that at at the beginning part of the text. You know, God, not only will God have mercy on whomever he wills, but why does the potter think uh, why does the pot think he can tell the potter what to do with the clay it's a good question it's not intended for you to answer it it's not a point of discussion it's a question making a point 
You and I have no right to challenge God's work of how he makes the pots, all right? Then letter B, God's glory is expressed through his wrath and through his mercy. Paul then makes it even harder. Not only only does he say, so why does the clay think it has the right to tell the potter how to shape and form and fashion its vessel? But then on top of that, he says, what is it to you? What if God has indeed decided that he wants to show patience and withhold uh, wrath until the time he decides and show wrath to vessels who deserve that wrath? What if God decides to do that in order that he might more clearly display his glory and his mercy to those who believe? That's what we spent our time on last week. We noted that really what the gospel does for us, it it presents the the glory and, and beauty of the diamond of the gospel against the backdrop of the uh, the black backdrop of God's wrath. That's what he's getting at in verses 22 and 23. This is how God has decided to work. I have a much greater understanding of the greatness, the riches of God's mercy. And this is all for God's glory. God judges some for his glory. God saves others for his glory. Again, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, I don't understand that. Maybe we feel a bit like Peter did, right? Maybe than the disciples. Lord, this saying is a hard saying. And it is. God's not given us reconciliation to our questions. Instead, Scripture forces us to trust that what God does is always right, it's always just, He's always good, and just because I can't figure all that out doesn't discount who God is. So, that this, this is what, what's going on then in verses 22 and 23. Then there's letter C. Paul now begins to transition out, out of this talk about God's election and into the talk of how God is at work saving people and why those people are responsible when they reject the gospel. But to do it, he gives us this final point here, at least for this text of chapter 9, and that is though not all will be saved, God extends mercy to Jews and Gentiles alike. Again, God's plan is coming together. The church may be in a position where she wonders. Paul's clearly being asked questions. Why is it that Jews are not believing? Why is it that what happened in those early days that seemed like this, this was going to be this great revival Looking out, it looked like there's nothing stopping this. Why is it stopped? Why, in fact, are so many Jews so hardened to the gospel? Paul's now going to address this even more clearly. And and in these, these verses where he quotes from Hosea, he quotes from Isaiah, in verses 24 through 29, this is Paul's basic and simple assertion, God has always been at work this way. God's plan has always been there would be a multitude of Gentiles who would believe and a remnant of Jews who would believe. This has been prophesied from the beginning. Now, let me me go ahead and say something so you keep this in the back of your mind. 
Paul's going to return to the issue of Jewish conversion in chapter 11. So just keep this in mind with what I'm going to say today and even next week. Keep, Keep this in mind. I think chapter 11 comes back around and tells us God is not done with the nation of Israel. All right, there is There is salvation coming, and that is chapter 11. But for now, how has God been at work since the New Testament time period until now? He's been at work extending His mercy to Jews and to Gentiles alike. God always meant for the gospel to be to the nations. God was always broadly scattering that seed of the gospel to wherever it might would land. He never intended for the gospel to be a message just for a particular ethnicity. This was always to be to the ends of the earth. And so he lays this out. So note how he lays this out. If we go on to the next slide, this isn't in your notes. You'd have to write this down, all right? Two points Paul makes. Number one, God is glorified by mercy extended to a multitude of Gentiles. And number two, God is glorified by mercy extended to a remnant of Jews. This is what he's going to share. Now, go, go back with me then to verse... 24. Keeping in mind 22 and 23, what we just said, God set up the glory of salvation against the backdrop of wrath. And what that does is that shows off the fact that this is the riches of His glory is expressed in the mercy He bestows on those which He had prepared beforehand for glory. Don't miss that, by the way, church. It's one of those hard statements he prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So that sets up his main point. God never intended just for the gospel to be a work unto the Jewish people. So this is not a variation on the plan. This is not a problem with what God has been doing. God always intended this. And so he gives us verses 25 and 26. He takes us to the Old Testament, takes us to Hosea, and applies a verse that originally would have spoken to the northern kingdom where God disowned them and then restored them. And he applies this then to, I think, what is the salvation of Gentiles. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, therefore they shall be called sons of the living God. Again, it's a profound promise, especially as applied to the, to the, to the Gentiles. By the way, unless you've got some lineage you can prove to me, you do know that's us, right? Now, maybe you've got some genealogy that takes you back to Father Abraham, all right? If so, I'd love to see that, okay? However, my guess is most of us folks in here would rightly identify as Gentiles. And it's a profound promise. One that, quite frankly, I think a lot of the Jews of the first century had trouble with. This idea that God was going to make non-Jewish people just as much a part of his people as the nation of Israel. Those who are not sons now have been called sons of God. And you may recall, I spent a lot of time in a passage long ago laying out why it's significant that we're called sons of God. 
in spite of our culture and tendency, you know, well, shouldn't it say sons and daughters or shouldn't it just say children? To give the to give the title sons of God in the first century was a title of highest honor. And I know ladies today, you don't think in those terms, but ladies in this day would have been astounded by the possibility that they would be designated as sons. Not in terms of their personhood, but in terms of their status. They were in inheritors of the promise. To be a son of God was then to say, All of us have equal standing before God through the gospel. That's a profound promise. And and God's glory then is expressed in this. This is what Paul is saying. His glory is expressed in the fact that a multitude of Gentiles were going to be saved. And that's what's happened. By the time you get to Romans, by the time you get to the end of the New Testament time period, I mean, they're, they're being saved left and right. The Gentiles are the vast majority of believers in the church by the time the book of Revelation closes. Again, this is good news for us. Because it reminds us God's work of salvation was never intended to be exclusively toward a particular group of people. God intended, He made the promise to Abraham, your seed, your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. This was always God's design. But but then God had also said that not everybody in Israel was going to believe. See, this was the assumption. It was the assumption on the part of some that just because they had Jewish blood, that automatically meant they were right with God. The gospel comes along and says, not so fast. (laughs) That's not how this works. Just having Jewish blood does not guarantee you access into God's kingdom. It does not bestow unto you righteousness. No one can claim privileged status in those terms. No, God always intended that there would be a remnant who was saved. There would be a remnant who would believe. And that the means by which men and women were made righteous, even among the Jews, was by faith. And yet that's what the vast majority were not showing. And so this is prophesied in verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. The remnant will be saved. There's nothing going on here that was not stated centuries earlier. It was only ever going to be a smaller number who was actually going to believe the gospel. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now, we're not going to turn down this road But this is language of judgment. And I know you and I, from our perspective, it doesn't feel like God has made short work. But this should be a striking reminder to us. God is not going to withhold His judgment forever. Judgment is coming. People will be held accountable for what they believe about Jesus. The time will be cut short. There will be judgment. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become made like Gomorrah. In other words, if there had not been this, and if there had not been this opportunity for a remnant to be saved, and if God had merely poured out His wrath, if there had not been patience in God's work, then we'd all be consumed. We'd all be burned up. So this is what God has been doing. God has been at work 
saving people in Jesus Christ. And that, that applies to a multitude of Gentiles and to a remnant of Jews. Again, it's, you know, it's just designed to try and explain the concern. Why is it that more have not believed? And so Paul had begun in chapter 9 and verse 6 to say not all of Israel was going to be saved in the first place. This, this then led to the famous quote, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We worked our way through that. But now he's kind of coming back around to that theme. There's only a remnant was going to believe. Not everyone was going to believe. Just because you are blood lineage, that, that doesn't guarantee you salvation. Now, So here's what I want to do as we we bring this to a conclusion. Don't look at your watches, all right? I know what time it is. Some of you are about to go, I know you're holding your breath, right? You're thinking, could it be? Could it be? I don't know, we'll see. If a phone or a watch goes off, no. All right, I'll just warn you right now, all right? I will figure out a way to make this go longer. Okay. But there, there are two concluding points that I want to note. That, that I think are just significant realities of what's being expressed through the theology of this text. Anyone can experience God's grace. See, of, of all that I've talked about in trying to lay out this doctrine, and trying to talk about election, which I know, again, is a hard truth, and I know there's a lot of points you know, that don't line up, and I know our minds at times feels muddled and heavy. You know, we wonder, can I, just, I keep going round and round and round, the gerbil on the wheel kind of thing. And I know it's hard because then some folks say, well, does that, you know, is God like picking this cosmic kickball team where he's saying you and not you and you and not you and you and not you? I mean, is that what God's doing? The Bible doesn't put it in those terms. It puts it in the terms of chapter 9. So we have to be satisfied with that and say, okay, that's sufficient, that's enough. What instead, though, really is the principle we can draw? Anybody can be saved. Not everybody will be saved, but anybody can be saved. God is equally at work in terms of His broad work of changing lives through the gospel. That doesn't mean everybody will be saved, but anyone can. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. And this is good news, church. This is good news because without it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be saved, all right? So God's work of grace is not located in a particular ethnic group. It's not based on a particular social group or cultural group. It's not based on how much money you have or don't have or how much education you have or don't have. None of it is dependent upon these things. God's grace is extended to anyone. Anyone. Anyone can experience God's grace. Of course, then I would make that appeal to anybody here who's never tasted that grace. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I pray that you would do so. See, the good news, I mean, the bad news is, yes, there is wrath, and that wrath is coming. God's judgment is a real thing, and it will happen, and everyone will be called into account. But you can receive the benefit of God in His grace allowing Jesus to bear His wrath for your sin. And that in return, you're granted the righteousness of Christ and that you are then granted right standing before God and you can have your sins forgiven if by faith you confess Christ crucified and resurrected, asking God to forgive you based on nothing more than what Christ has done for you. And if you trust that gospel, 
You can be saved today. Again, Pastor, what about all that election? Ah, Just going to have to stop right there. That is from God's perspective. The only thing I know from the text is that is what's going on. But I will tell you what the rest of the thing is going to say. The end of chapter 9, going into chapter 10, God is going to lay responsibility clearly at the feet of people for rejecting the gospel. It's clearly going to lay it at their feet. So I just trust that. From my perspective, I don't know who's going to be saved, how they're going to be saved, when they're going to be saved. I just know that anyone can be saved. So what should we be doing? We should be scattering broadly the truth of the gospel, right? I scattered anywhere and everywhere. I'll let God do the saving, but my responsibility is to, is to broadly broadcast that message because anyone can be saved. But number two, no one can assume God's grace. You can't assume it. Maybe the better language would be you cannot presume upon it. You cannot presume upon it. Listen, I am sure your grandpappy was one fine man, but God does not care about him when it comes to your standing with him. You may have had awesome parents that raised you in church. Doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter in one sense, but it doesn't matter in terms of your standing with God. You, you can try and stand before God and say, well, my parents were members of churches and their parents before him and their parents before him, and God's not going to care. See, the Jews weren't going to be able to presume upon God's grace. Ethnically, I've got the DNA of Abraham in me. I mean, half the book of Romans is designed to demonstrate that is not what saves. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. This is what saves. No one can assume, I'm good, I'm covered, I'm a good person, I come from good people, or, you know, I just don't see that God would judge anybody for eternity. Whatever, whatever you may fill in there and, and try and you know, w- wiggle out what is God's clear message to us. No one can assume it. It is available, but you can't just assume that it is yours. So what is our response then to this? What is our response to any of these things? Well, that's the response I think and hope and pray that we've made last week and back when we were in Romans before we took a break and looked at some other topics in the midst of dealing with the hurricane. And the response to this then is utter humility utter humility, and grateful worship. Utter humility and grateful worship. That I bow before my God and thank Him for His mercy to me and His grace to me. Because not a one of us can stand before God and say, I deserved a little bit of it. Every single person deserves the cross. All of us deserve the cross. Oh, but God in His grace, God in His grace extends us forgiveness and salvation. And so may we yield our lives to Him in humility and in worship and trust and obedience 
May we find ourselves then yielded our, yielding our lives, as we'll sing here in just a minute, consecrating ourselves unto the Lord. This is what the gospel does. So as we have a time where we respond, we respond as we sing to God's Word, and maybe you'd want your response to be a little bit more physical. By that I mean, maybe you'd want to come and kneel here. Maybe it is to express gratitude and humility and worship to God for His grace shown in such abundance to us. Maybe it would be in submission to the gospel. Maybe it would be to come and to trust Christ as your Savior. How would you then respond? How would you see this word brought to bear on your life this morning? Let's stand and I'll pray. After I pray, we will sing. And you can come as the Lord would lead. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for what it does for us, what it does to us, in us. We thank you that you are a God who is extending grace. We thank you and what that means then for us who've been made righteous in Christ. And I pray that you would continue to have your way in our hearts and minds and in our lives. May your spirit then bring this word to bear on us. and Do the work in us that needs to be done that we might continue to live for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.